0: Welcome back to Understanding Childhood Cancer. I'm Dr. Jeff and I'm a paediatric oncologist, you know, the chemo guy. And in particular, I'm a paediatric oncologist here at the Children's Hospital at Westmead and Westmead is a suburb in Sydney, and the Children's Hospital at Westmead is the biggest hospital in the state of New South Wales, and, well, I'm one of the paediatric oncologists here. Anyway, this is my podcast, which is mostly for the parents of children who are undergoing treatment for cancer or leukaemia, and I'd better point out that this is my private project. This isn't a sort of hospital-endorsed sort of a thing. They don't check over every episode and listen to what I've said. So it's mostly my own private opinions, I suppose. Anyway, today I'm going to talk about an article that was published recently, and I think you'll find it of interest. And in particular, it's an article that looks at that whole situation of children with cancer and did they get cancer because they had some sort of a genetic abnormality or variant that made them more likely to get cancer than other kids. And it's one of the first questions we get from parents when their child is diagnosed with one of these terrible diseases is, you know, why did my child get cancer or leukemia? Firstly, they want to know, was it something we did? Was it something in our lifestyle? And, you know, we're able to point out that no, it's not something in your lifestyle. It's not like adult cancer where smoking gives you cancer and Too much red meat apparently gives you cancer and too much bacon gives you cancer. No, with children, it's not really to do with anything in the lifestyle. The next thing they ask is, well, all right, is it genetic? Was it something they inherited from us? Or is it something that now is going to be in the family as a cause for childhood cancer? So are the other children in the family at risk? Are the cousins and the nephews and the nieces at risk of getting childhood cancer? And they all want to know the answer to that question. And Most of the time we're able to say, well, no, we don't really think that's the case. Uh, It's only a small minority of children with cancer who have some sort of genetic predisposing factor, some sort of gene or something that makes them more likely to get cancer. So we're able to tell them that, but today I want to talk about a new article that's been published because they've been able to use all the latest and greatest modern technologies to examine this question and come up with some more up-to-date information and some more sophisticated analyses and all of that sort of thing. So I'm going to tell you about this article. And the article was published in the New England Journal of Medicine. And basically, this would be about the most prestigious medical journal of them all, if you're looking at sort of clinical medicine, the New England Journal of Medicine. So it publishes on all sorts of things, not just cancer, but all the big breakthroughs in uh, clinical medicine, really get into the New England Journal of Medicine. Now the basic science papers, you know, they're being published elsewhere sometimes. They might be in journals like Nature or Cell or Science, those sorts of journals. And they're big time journals too. But the New England Journal of Medicine, this is the most prestigious journal I would think for clinical sort of research. And this article was published on November the 18th, 2015. And the authors of the paper are a big long list of multiple different authors on the paper. But basically, they came from St. Jude Children's Research Hospital in Memphis, Tennessee, and from the Department of Genetics and the McDonald Genome Institute at Washington University School of Medicine in St. Louis, which is in Missouri. And the What you always want to know when you look at a paper, you really want to look at the first author and then you want to look at the senior author. The senior author is usually the big eminent professor type who is the last author on the whole big list of authors. And that guy was James Downing, called Jim Downing. And I know him, he's at St. Jude's Hospital. And then you have the first author, that's the author that's listed first of the whole great list and this is usually the person who's more junior in their career but has really done all the work in uh, compiling all the data and writing the paper and everything under the supervision of the senior author and then you have all the authors in between and they've all done their share as well and this really reads like a who's who of oncology in St Jude's Hospital it's got all the big brain tumor people and the leukemia people and the sarcoma people and pathologists and everybody but the first author in this case was actually four different people. That's something else you sometimes get. If you have two people who played approximately an equal role in writing the paper, they might indicate in the fine print that, you know, that the first and second authors contributed equally to this article. And that's important to them because when they're putting together their CV and their list of publications, that means that the first and second authors are equally able to say they were first author on a paper in the New England Journal of Medicine. And that's pretty important to your career and getting grants and stuff. But on this occasion, there's four different authors who each are rated as first author. And they are Jinghui Zhang, PhD, Michael Walsh, MD, Gang Wu, PhD, and... Kim E. Nichols, MD. So those four are all considered to have contributed equally to the article. And then you have Jim Downing, who's the senior author. And the title of the paper was Germline Mutations in Predisposition Genes in Paediatric Cancer. Now, if you want to understand a bit more about DNA and genes and proteins and all those things, I'd suggest you listen to my podcast episodes on personalised medicine and personalised oncology. There's about five of them so far, but there'll be more soon. But they explain a bit about DNA and proteins and things like that. But just to explain some of the terminology in the title of this talk, germline mutations first. So germline DNA is the DNA that you're born with that's in every cell in your body, mostly. And that's different to the DNA that sometimes appears in a tumour. Sometimes a tumour, a cancer, has DNA that's changed from how it was when you were born and before the cancer developed. And so the tumour has what you call a somatic mutation, a somatic mutation. Well, this paper isn't looking at tumours, it's looking at the blood samples from children with cancer, the so-called normal DNA that they've got, not the tumor DNA. And it's looking at the DNA in their cells, and that's the germline DNA. So it's to look at that DNA and see is there something about that DNA that they were born with that has contributed to them being more likely to get cancer or leukemia than other children. So it's looking for germline DNA mutations and then the next term in the title is predisposition genes. So predisposition refers to this whole notion of whether a child was more likely to get cancer or leukemia than other children. And like I said, most of the time we believe that children don't have some predisposition to get cancer. Most of the time we think they were incredibly unlucky and it was nothing to do with the DNA they were born with, and it's nothing to do with their lifestyle. It's just some sort of a random event. Well, that's what we mostly think. But in this paper, they looked for germline mutations in predisposition genes to see, well, if you look at children with cancer, how many of them do actually have something in their DNA that made them more likely to get cancer or leukemia, something that might have contributed at least in part, to them getting cancer or leukemia? Pretty important question, right? So let me tell you what this big, huge team of people did. Well, what they did was they identified 1,120 children or adolescents with cancer, and they were patients who were part of a big, huge study that they called their Pediatric Cancer Genome Project the PCGP, and this was some sort of combined project of St. Jude's and this Washington University, yeah, to form this paediatric cancer genome project. So they had 1,120 patients who were enrolled in this study, and they were all children or teenagers who had had cancer diagnosed. And then they conducted a very, very sophisticated analysis of the germline DNA in all of these children and adolescents. So they didn't take the tumour and analyse it in particular to look for an abnormality. What they wanted to look at was the germline. So, so probably they used a blood sample to do that most of the time, provided that the blood sample didn't have leukaemia in it. Now they did go and analyse the tumours on 522 of them as another part of this study. But the main thing in this study was they studied the germline DNA. So that's the DNA that the child's sort of born with and is in all the normal tissues of their body. And they did whole genome sequencing or whole exome sequencing. And that's a very big deal to do all the DNA sequencing for the whole genome or the whole exome. You know, that's a very sophisticated test. Now, the next thing they did was they got the same sort of DNA data from two groups of people who did not have cancer. So in particular, they got the DNA results from 966 unrelated adults who were part of some other project called the Thousand Genome Project. And then the second set of people without cancer were a group of people who were studied in a completely unrelated study that was a research study looking at autism. And in that project, they had 515 people with autism and 208 people without autism. And this isn't because autism has anything to do with cancer. It's just that they had all this DNA analysis on all of these people. And so they could serve as another group of what you call controls. So non-cancer data. Okay, so they do all of this DNA sequencing to work out the order of all the different bases and nucleotides in the DNA, and then they went and selected 565 genes to look at in particular from amongst all of that DNA analysis. And in particular they first off included 60 different genes that are on the list of genes that are associated with being more likely to get cancer in a dominant fashion. So remember you have two copies of each gene in your body normally and you get one copy from your mother and one copy from your father. Well there are some diseases where you have to have two abnormal copies of the gene for you to get the disease in question. So for instance you've heard of a disease called cystic fibrosis. Well in cystic fibrosis if you've got one normal gene and one abnormal gene, well, mostly you won't get cystic fibrosis. Now, to get cystic fibrosis, you need to have two genes that are defective. So that's a condition that's called a recessive disorder. Now, a dominant disorder is one where just one bad gene is enough to get the disease. So if you have one copy of a gene that's normal and one that's abnormal and that situation causes the disease in question, well, then it's called a dominant disorder. And so in this study, they identified 60 genes where if you have one defective gene, that's enough for you to be more likely to get cancer. And the paper listed all of these 60 different genes, and they're all provided in the article. Then they studied 29 genes that are associated with a cancer predisposition syndrome, but only in an autosomal recessive way. So that means you have to have bad copies of both copies of your gene, and then you're more likely to get cancer. And then they looked at an additional 476 genes that were chosen not because they're associated with familial cancer or a predisposition to cancer, but because they're sometimes found to be mutated actually in tumours. So they analysed all of them as well. But basically they sequenced all of the DNA in the patients and in the controls who didn't have cancer, and then they looked at these 565 genes to see, well, who has abnormalities in any of these genes, and particularly in the 60 genes that are associated with a cancer predisposition syndrome of a dominant type. Now before I get to the results I have to point out something about this paper that is important and that is you have to look at the 1,120 children and adolescents with cancer or leukemia because they didn't include all the different types of childhood cancer and leukemia. So in particular 588 of them had leukemia 245 had brain tumors and 287 had solid tumors that weren't brain tumors. But if you looked at a standard group of children with cancer and leukemia, well you wouldn't have 52.5% of your patients having leukemia, you'd have about 25% and they point this out. And likewise the brain tumors were about 22% in this paper but a normal population of children with cancer or leukemia would have about 17.6% brain tumors. And if you looked at the patients in this paper, well, they didn't include anyone with Wilms tumor or hepatoblastoma or lymphoma and a few other tumor types. So the group of patients wasn't entirely representative of a standard group of children or adolescents with cancer. It was a bit sort of biased in its numbers in favour of having more patients with leukaemia and more patients with something called an adrenocortical tumour and having no patients with lymphoma, Wilms tumour, hepatoblastoma and a few others. So that becomes a little bit important later on and in particular among the patients with leukaemia they tended to have the higher risk forms of leukaemia included and not as many of the more standard forms of leukaemia. Okay, well, having said all of that, well, let's get to the results. Let's look at the 60 genes that are part of what you call the dominant cancer predisposition syndromes. So these are the genes where if you have one bad copy and one good copy, then you have the condition of being more likely to get cancer or leukemia. It doesn't mean you're going to get cancer or leukemia, but it does mean you are more likely to get cancer or leukemia. Well, out of their 1,120 patients, when they looked at those 60 genes, they found 633 variant forms of the genes. But then you look at those variant forms and look at, well, which ones are likely to be a problem, and they said 78 were pathogenic, so they were pretty sure that they would be a problem. And 17 were what you call probably pathogenic. So there were 95 patients who had an abnormality in one of those 60 genes that they would predict to be a problem and result in a situation of being more likely to get cancer or leukemia than the general population. So 94 patients out of the 1,120 had an abnormality in in one of these genes. So 95 out of 1120 and that comes to 8.4% of these patients had an underlying gene abnormality that might have been important to why they got cancer or leukemia. So next you want to know well 8.4% of the patients had one of these gene abnormalities Well, what about the people without cancer? So remember, there's two groups of people that were analysed in this study that didn't have cancer. First, there was the 996 people from the 1000 Genome Project. Well, 1.1% of them had an abnormality in one of these genes. And then there was that group of people from the autism study, and some of them had autism and some of them didn't. But in that group, it was 0.6% who had an abnormality in one of these genes. So the patients with cancer and leukemia, 8.4% of them had an abnormality in one of these genes, and that really was a lot more than was seen in people without cancer or leukemia. And next they talked about those recessive genes. Remember I said there were 29 recessive genes. These are the ones where the patient has to have a bad copy of both copies of the genes in order to be at risk of getting cancer or leukemia. Well, they only found this in one patient out of the 1,120 patients. So it ends up that 95 patients out of this 1,120 had a germline mutation that was associated with a higher risk of getting cancer or leukemia. So they call that a prevalence of 8.5%. So that's the take-home figure from the paper, if you like, 8.5%. So in a study of 1,120 children and adolescents that had cancer, well, 8.5% of them were found to have something in the DNA they were born with that put them at greater risk of getting cancer or leukemia. 8.5%. Now, as usual with these things, it's not as simple as that. Remember how I said that this 1,120 patients weren't entirely representative of childhood cancer? So there was a bit of a bias in favour of high-risk leukaemia in the group, and there was a bit of a bias in favour of something called adrenocortical carcinoma, which is actually a pretty rare tumour. So it wasn't a sort of standard mix of childhood cancer and leukaemia. Well, they did another analysis and they took out those patients with that adrenocortical carcinoma and they took out the patients with a particular form of leukemia. And when they did that, well, then they found that it was really only 5.6% of the patients who had an underlying genetic reason to be at greater risk of cancer or leukemia. So if you wanted to, you could use a take-home figure of 5.6% of children and adolescents with cancer or leukemia had some underlying genetic reason why they might have got cancer or leukemia. So perhaps that 8.5% figure is a bit of an overestimate of the true risk of having some predisposing gene mutation. On the other hand, the authors had a section of the paper called the discussion, and this is where they just talk about the results a bit more. And In the discussion, they pointed out that they had some reasons to think that the figure might actually be higher than 8.5%. Now, this was for all sorts of very complicated biochemical and genetic reasons. But there are some reasons to think that the true rate of having a predisposing gene mutation might be more than 8.5%. So it all ends up very confusing, But I think settling on that figure of 8.5% for now uh, would be reasonable. Now, what were the genes that were affected? That's an important question. So remember, there were 94 patients who had an abnormality in one of these genes that predisposed to getting cancer. Well, it turns out that the most common gene that was abnormal is something called the tp 53 gene and that one was involved in 50 patients, the p53 gene. And the p53 gene is very well studied and we know a great deal about the p53 gene. And in particular there is a familial cancer condition called the Li fraumeni syndrome where people are born with one abnormal copy of the p53 gene and one normal copy. And we know that these patients are at higher risk of getting cancer and leukemia. And there's a particular set of types of cancer and leukemia that are typically seen in the Lee-Fraumeni syndrome, including, by the way, that adrenocortical carcinoma that I mentioned and the high-risk leukemia that I mentioned and something called a choroid plexus carcinoma, which is a brain tumour, and a few other tumour types. So it turns out that just over half of the patients that had an abnormal gene had this particular gene involved, the P53 gene. Now the other genes that were involved were all just involved in small numbers of patients. So there was the APC gene, the BRCA2 gene, the NF1 gene, and the RB1 gene, that's the bilateral retinoblastoma gene, and these were all involved in only three to six patients each. Now, the next thing that they looked at was the family history. See, one of the ways we look at a child with cancer or leukemia and try to work out, well, is there anything in the family that might be predisposing to cancer or leukemia, is to look at the family history. So what we're doing there is we're saying, okay, apart from this particular child, what about the rest of the family? So the parents, are the parents well or have the parents had tumours have the parents' brothers and sisters had tumours? Have the grandparents had tumours? Are there any nephews or nieces or brothers or sisters? Are there other people in the close family who have had cancer? And in particular, we're talking about cancer at a young age. We're not talking about elderly relatives that got colon cancer when they were 75 years of age, for instance. No, we're particularly asking about cancer that occurred at a younger age. So, in childhood or in the 20s or their 30s. And in particular, we're looking at particular sorts of cancer. We're trying to get a sense of whether there's a pattern of cancer at a young age occurring in this family. And that's one of the things we've always done to determine, well, do we have to take this further? Do we need to pursue more complicated genetic testing, etc.? Well, what they did on a proportion of the patients in this study was look at the family history. And so they looked at the medical records of the 95 patients with a DNA mutation. But when they looked at the medical records, they only actually had medical records that were available for a review on 75 of the patients, and only 58 of them had enough information on the broader family history to look at it very closely. So 58 patients had the family history written down in the medical record that was available. And it turns out that only 23 of the 58 had a family history of cancer in a first or second degree relative. And so that's the closer family, not some seventh cousin twice removed or something like that. So you got that? Of the 95 patients, there were only 58 that had a good family history written down and available. And only 23 of those 58 had cancer that was occurring in a close relative. So only 40% of these patients had a family history of cancer. So next they went back to their 1,120 patients with cancer and they picked out 100 patients who didn't have any abnormal gene on all this genetic testing And they went and looked at their family history. Well, it turns out that from that 100 patients that they selected, only 43 had family history information available. But from those 43 patients, 18 had a family history that was positive for cancer. And that was 42%. So let me say that again. If you looked at the 95 patients that had one of these abnormal genes, these predisposing genes, well, about 40% of them had a family history of cancer in close relatives. But if you looked at a group of patients who did not have this predisposing gene, did not have some genetic predisposition to cancer, well, 40% of them had a family history of cancer in a close relative, So this is starting to suggest that just looking at the family history isn't necessarily going to narrow it down to which patients are more likely to have a predisposition syndrome because 40% of the patients had a family history of cancer in a closer relative whether they had the gene or not. So it gets very confusing and so if I quote the author's statement in the discussion section in this paper, they concluded that on the basis of these observations, family history cannot be the sole indication used to guide the provision of genetic testing. You got that? Just the family history isn't going to be enough as we move further into the 21st century and looking at all of these things. And the next thing that the authors did, and you see this in most medical articles, is they point out the limitations of their study. And they pointed out that in particular, their study didn't include certain types of childhood cancer, didn't include Wilms tumour, didn't include lymphoma, didn't include hepatoblastoma, and a few others. And in addition, it had a greater than expected proportion of patients that had adrenocortical tumours and acute lymphoblastic leukaemia of the hypodiploid type. And I talked about that before. But they go on to say that even if you uh, correct for all of those sorts of abnormalities as best you can, you still end up with about 5.6% of the patients having some sort of underlying gene mutation that predisposed them to getting the cancer or leukaemia that they got. The other thing that they pointed out as a limitation was that they weren't able to study the parents of the patients. So we've got the 1,120 patients and we've got all of their DNA results, but we don't have information on the parents and we don't have DNA results on them. And this is very important because if a patient has one of these gene mutations that predisposes to cancer or leukemia, well you want to know whether they inherited it from one of their parents or whether it was a new mutation that occurred in the child at the time of conception or in the days after conception. And this can happen. You can have parents with completely normal genes, so for instance a normal p53 gene, But the child can end up with an abnormal gene, and that's something that they haven't inherited, but it's just developed as a new mutation in the particular child. And this is very important because if one of the parents has the gene mutation, then it's relevant to look at the patient's brothers and sisters and look at the broader family. But if only the child in question has the gene mutation, well, it's not going to be present in their brothers and sisters. Now, it might be something they could pass on to their next generation, but it would not have been present in the earlier generation or in the brothers, sisters, cousins, nephews, nieces, etc. Anyway, what's my take on this paper? Well, the first thing I'd say is this is a very important publication. This is a publication that has used the cutting-edge modern techniques to analyse DNA and come up with some answers. The other thing I'd say is it's come from a very good group, the St. Jude Group and Washington University. These are first-rate researchers. They've studied a lot of patients, they've got a lot of controls and the New England Journal of Medicine has a very rigorous process of review before they'll publish anything. So this is a very important publication. The next thing I'd say is that if you look at that 8.5% figure, right, so we're saying 8.5% of the patients had an underlying gene that predisposed to cancer or leukemia. I think if you'd speculated what's the figure going to be and if you'd speculated, say, 20 years ago, you wouldn't have said 8.5%. I think you would have said it was a lower figure than that. So it just indicates how many more of these predisposing genes we're identifying as time goes on, and then how with more and more sophisticated ways of analysing DNA, we're better able to find them. So yeah, if you'd asked me 10 or 20 years ago to pluck a number out of the air, I wouldn't have plucked 8.5% out of the air. I would have said people thought it was a lower figure than that. It might only be 5.6%, not 8.5%, but it's in that sort of ballpark area. So I think this is going to have implications as we move forward as far as selecting which patients should have testing of DNA performed to look for some sort of underlying cancer predisposition gene. I think it's going to become a bigger area and we're going to have to look at who should have these tests and who shouldn't and that's going to have lots of implications for the health sector of course in how do you provide this sort of service. How do you provide the testing? How do you provide the genetic counselling? How do you look after the extended family? All sorts of implications from this. But anyway, I'll leave it there. Again, the paper is called Germline Mutations in Predisposition Genes in Paediatric Cancer, published in the New England Journal of Medicine on November 18, 2015. The first author that's listed is Jinghui Zhang, that's Z-H-A-N-G, and a very important paper. 1,120 patients diagnosed with cancer or leukemia before their 20th birthday, and it turned out that 8.5% of them had a gene mutation that was deemed to be pathogenic or probably pathogenic. So a mutation that put them at greater risk of getting cancer or leukemia. And that compared to only 1.1% of people in the 1000 Genome Project and 0.6% of the people that were in the autism study. Furthermore, simply taking a family history and looking for relatives with cancer or leukemia did not predict the presence of an underlying predisposition syndrome. So a very important paper, lots of implications. Anyway, I'll leave it there. Let me know if you found this helpful or useful or interesting or confronting. Leave comments at my Facebook page, go to Facebook, look for Understanding Childhood Cancer with Dr. Jeff and you can leave me a comment. Thanks for tuning in to Understanding Childhood Cancer. I'm Dr. Jeff and I'll talk to you next time. Bye now.